I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 down through verse 22, I think it is. This is uh, Matthew 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. We are talking about commitment this morning. Do you know the vision statement at Lockwood Church? If you don't, you should. It is this. Committed to Christ, to Christ-likeness, to each other, and to the world. Our vision is not focused on the ABCs of American church growth, attendance, building, and cash, but on the kind of people God intends to make us. And a good word for that kind of people is committed. Now, we know that not everyone's committed. Some people who come here are seekers. Some haven't decided yet whether commitment is the right path for them. We understand that. We're grateful that they're here checking us and checking Jesus out. But for the people who make up the church at Lockwood the people we ourselves want to be, committed is the right word. It's the right word, but it's also a strong word. We're not looking for people to be affiliated. We're not looking for people to be associated. We don't gauge success by the number of people who call Lockwood their church home, but we realize that our success will depend upon the commitment level of the people who do. When the word commit is used in the Bible, it has the idea of setting something before another person or of placing something in the care of another person. That's why it sometimes is translated as entrust. Entrusted. To be committed to Christ is to have committed or entrusted oneself to him. That's something that people often misunderstand when they talk about trusting Jesus. Trusting him always involves entrusting something to him. That idea is obvious in John chapter 2, when John tells us that Jesus would not entrust himself to some would-be followers. He tells us they believed in Jesus, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. And the word he uses is the same word that's translated elsewhere as trust. Because Jesus did not trust them, he didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't place himself at their disposal. To trust someone always involves entrusting something to that person. 
for us to trust Jesus, we must entrust, commit something of ourselves to him. That's what it means to trust Jesus. That idea is also present when we talk about husbands and wives who are committed to each other. They've committed or they have entrusted themselves and their future to their spouse. They've committed their future, their hearts, their feelings, their well-being, their financial security, their home, and their children to the care of that other person. That's a huge step, isn't it? And that other person may not protect and care for their heart and feelings and well-being and financial security and children. He or she may break trust. But you see, being committed does not simply mean trying harder or even doing your best. It means giving something of yourself to another person. To be completely committed means that you have committed your complete person to another. You've placed your well-being in someone else's hands. So understand what this means in terms of the Christian faith. It means that you have not trusted Christ until you have entrusted yourself to him. You can join a church. You can affirm that Jesus is God's son and recite the Nicene Creed. You can argue from Scripture the deity of Christ and the efficacy of his death. You can be baptized, and you can do all of that without ever entrusting anything of yourself to him. You can become a minister of the gospel, an evangelist, or a priest without trusting Christ. You've not trusted Christ until you have entrusted yourself to him. Too often faith is presented as if it had nothing to do with the earth now, only with heaven later. I trust that Jesus will take my soul to heaven when I die. Trusting Jesus with your soul's future, that's a good thing to do. It can be a real expression of faith, but it's hardly what Jesus was talking about when he urged people to trust in him. Biblical faith requires that you entrust something of yourself to God. In other words, it requires commitment. God calls us to entrust our very selves, our lives now, as well as in the future, to him. But because there's far more of you than you currently realize, there's, you are so complex. There's far more of you than you know. Because of that, your first attempts to trust Jesus with yourself will be faltering and partial. For the rest of your life, you'll be discovering parts of yourself previously unrecognized that need to be entrusted to Christ. And as such, faith and commitment has a definite beginning in our lives, but no ending. There is a point in a person's life in which he or she has not yet trusted Christ, has committed nothing of himself or herself to Jesus. That person may be even a very religious person. But for many of us, there came a point when we committed ourselves as best we knew how to Jesus. And that was the beginning point of our trust in him. Very often that first commitment is partial. It's temporal. It's even really minimal. 
a mom entrusts her teenage son to Jesus on the first night that she lets him stay out past midnight. It's a real trust, and it's a real commitment, but it's extremely limited. It's limited to her son's safety, his bodily safety, and limited to a few hours on one night. It's real, but it's limited. It's not what we would call saving faith. From time to time, I talk to people, and I I just ask them, have you ever trusted Christ as your, your Lord and Savior? And they say, oh, yeah, I've trusted in Jesus. But as we go on talking, I realize what they mean is that they've trusted God or they've trusted Jesus by entrusting some aspect of their life, like their safety or their health, at some point in time to God. Now, that's a great first step. But there's so much more to faith in God and in Jesus than that. Let me give you a few examples. They're not meant to be exhaustive at all. But a few examples of what we commit to Christ when we commit ourselves to him, when we trust in him. For one, when we trust Jesus, we entrust our wrongs and our sins to him. We lay our sins on Jesus, as the old hymn has it, the spotless lamb of God. He takes them all and frees us from the accursed load. I acknowledge my sins as my own, and I confess that I can't bear them. I just can't. I can't take the punishment of them, nor what they've made out of me. And I entrust them. I commit them to Jesus to take care of them. And he does. He takes the consequences of my sin into himself, and he sends away my sins, which is what one of the main words translated forgiveness means, to send away. He sends them away. I commit my sins to Jesus, trusting him to take care of them, knowing that I can't do that myself. I entrust him my sins. But when it comes to trusting Christ, that's just the beginning. There's much more to commit to him than our temporal safety or our sins. When we say we're committed to Christ, we mean that we have committed ourselves as best we understand ourselves. His direction and his care, whatever that might entail. And it entails a great deal. For example, we commit our reputation to Christ. That's a hard one for some people, especially at the beginning. I think it keeps some folks, you know, the the I'm my own man, I'm my own woman type. It keeps them from coming to Christ. They're afraid that faith in Jesus is a kind of weakness. You know, I felt that when I was a young Christian. I did not want people to know that I belonged to Christ. I'm not sure why, why I didn't want people to know that. I I think I felt, at least in part, that I didn't want them to think I was weird. This really believing in Jesus, I mean, isn't that a weird thing to do? I I didn't want them to define me by the things that I didn't do. That's what non-Christians do. Oh, yeah, he's a Christian. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't use. He doesn't fight. He doesn't swear fighting for a while. That one was a little up and down for me, but the other things, I was not doing those things. It took me a while to entrust my reputation to Jesus, to let him take care of what people think of me. We go further. We commit our time to Christ. At first, that might just be our time on Sunday mornings, you know, from 8.30 to 9.30. Boom. There you go, Jesus. 
boy, I gave you my time on an hour on Sunday morning. Now, I don't want to downplay that because that is a meaningful step. But later, maybe we go on and we commit 15 minutes a day to him to read the Bible, to listen for his voice, to pray. 15 minutes to him a day, 1,425 minutes to me a day to do as I choose. But then we realize, boy, that's kind of a half-hearted commitment to Christ. And a half-hearted commitment to Christ, like a half-hearted commitment to marriage, is bound to leave a person dissatisfied and looking for other options. Better to say to him, all right, Lord, my time is yours. Whatever you bring into my life, I'll accept. I'll not consider you or the people you bring to me to be interruptions on my time since my time is all in your hands. My time, Psalm 31, verse 14, is in your hands. Further, we commit our bodies to Christ. That's what Paul had in mind when he told us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We reserve no right to use our bodies in any way that Christ cannot approve. I entrust my body to him. It's health, it's well-being, it's needs and energy to serve his purpose and my good as he sees fit. We commit our goals and aspirations to him. We say to him, here's what I'm aiming for, God. I want to be a doctor or a writer or a farmer or a parent or a husband or a business person. I want to travel abroad. I want to live abroad. I want to be a missionary. But today I place my most cherished ambitions in your care. I trust you to take care of them, to make adjustments to them as you see fit. I'm entrusting my hopes my goals to you. I don't know if you know this, some, many of you do, but I, wasn't, I was never planning on being a pastor. I intended to go overseas. I thought I was going to serve the Lord in some place where I didn't have to get in front of people and speak, for one thing. And I gave that to the Lord. And he said, no, that's not what I have in mind for you. But I entrusted him my ambition. We commit our relationships to Christ. We have no relationships when we commit them to Christ. They're exempt from his oversight and control. My relationships to boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, child, parent, boss, employee, friend, enemy, they are all committed to Christ. I'm giving them to you. The remarkable thing is when we entrust something to Christ, he usually gives it back to us. More ours now because it's his. My wife becomes more mine. I love her more, I care for her more, feel more responsible for her because she's his, because I've committed her to him. The same is true of my job, my car, my time, my recreation, because I've committed them to him. It was something along these lines that Jesus was thinking when he said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We give it to him and we find it ourselves. When we say our vision at LCC is to be committed to Christ, please understand, I'm not saying try harder. You're not trying hard enough. You just got to try harder. That's not what we're saying. We're talking about entrusting ourselves, all of ourselves, as best we know how, to Christ. But be honest, we know that even our best efforts have frequently fallen short. Our sturdiest intentions have frayed at the edges and then fallen apart. How can we, the owners of so many failures 
expect to be true to our commitment to Christ. I'll tell you this will not be true because we are strong. We will be true because the one to whom we're committed is stronger. We'll not stay true because of what we've committed to him. We'll stay true because of what he's committed to us. Because you see, we're not the only ones in this relationship who make a commitment. We're not the only ones who've entrusted something important. He's entrusted something to us far greater than what we've entrusted to him. He's given us his spirit to live in us. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he said, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. It's not your intention, it's not your strength, it's not your power, it's God. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts. That makes all the difference. When we commit to God, he commits to us. When we entrust our very selves to him, he entrusts his very self, his spirit, to us. Commitment, ours to God and God's to us, is a two-way street. And that is absolutely necessary if we're to succeed in the Christian life. A few years ago, a researcher named Gary McPherson tried to find out why some people make good musicians while others don't. So he studied 157 kids, randomly selected kids, as they picked out and learned a musical instrument. Some of them went on to be accomplished musicians, some of the 157. Some of them gave up their instruments altogether in no time at all. McPherson wanted to know why. And so he looked for traits that would distinguish those who were successful from those who weren't. He looked at IQ, for example. Some of these kids had higher IQs, some lower IQs. Did that make a difference in their musical ability? He found out that IQ was not a good predictor at all. Neither were oral sensitivity, math skills, income, or even a sense of rhythm. The best single predictor of success was a question McPherson asked the students before they even selected their instrument. You know, that day in sixth grade when, what do you want to play, the piccolo or the tuba? And the child says, oh, I want to play the tuba. He asked them, how long do you think you will play? The students who said, in effect, I'm going to play this tuba for the rest of my life were far and away the most successful musicians. The same is true of people who come to church. The ones who say, I am committing myself to Jesus. I'm going to be his person for the rest of my life. Our people are going to succeed. They may go through some rough patches, but they're the ones who are going to make it. Of course, Jesus knew this. He's so smart. He just really is, just so smart. He knew that the half-hearted, the hesitant, the uncommitted weren't going to stick. That's why he urged people to first count the cost. That's why he insisted people think about what they were getting themselves into. Why he pointed out the difficulties of commitment in such detail. Because he understood this. Jesus didn't go for numbers. He went for hearts. 
He wanted people to make it. He didn't want them to fail. When in Matthew 8, that would-be follower calls out, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. This guy, by the way, was a, what's called a scribe or a teacher of the law. He's, most of those people didn't associate with Jesus. And this guy said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus didn't say, that is so great. It's going to be wonderful to have you on the team. Instead, he forced the guy to think about what a commitment to him really entailed. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You want to come with me? If you're going to commit to me, you're going to put your life in my hands, I want you to know what to expect. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And notice, this man is already a disciple. He's identified as a disciple. This is a guy who has already apprenticed himself to Jesus, committed his time and his energy to learn from Jesus how to live with God and with people. Jesus' response to him seems harsh. Lord, first let me go bury my father. No. No. Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. It is harsh. Now, there's something there we need to understand. We read this passage, we assume that the father has just died. That's possible, but it's not very probable. Since burials were performed the same day, and this guy would not have been present if his father had just died. There are all kinds of traditions in Judaism about that. It's much more likely that his father was old. And the disciple was saying, Lord, I'm still intending to follow you, but I just need a little time before I get started. See, my dad isn't well. I need to go home. He's old and feeble. He's probably going to die soon. And, and I just need to oversee his affairs until he dies. And then I'll come. In this case, I suspect that the son wanted to be home until his dad died because he didn't want his siblings to have access to his dad's estate while he was gone. He was afraid there wouldn't be anything left of it. But whether or not that was the case, this man had committed already himself to Jesus, his time, his future, his security. He was a disciple. And Jesus, who takes such commitments very seriously, was acting on it. See, if you commit your life to Jesus, you need to know that he may make choices for you that you wouldn't make yourself. But you've committed yourself. You've put yourself in his hands. It's the nature of commitment to limit our options. When we commit to a vacation spot, for example, when we book a room and entrust our money to Hotels.com, we limit our options concerning what we can do and what we can see. When a man commits his life to a woman in marriage, he limits his options. There will be no other women from now on. When he accepts her commitment to him, he promises to be there for her, which means he'll not be somewhere else. That's the nature of commitment. And it's the nature of commitment when it comes to God, too. When a person commits to Jesus, he's limiting his options. But here's the thing. No one will ever succeed in any endeavor worth doing who's not willing to limit his options. St. Paul knew that. That's why he said, this one thing I do. 
not these many things I toy with. One final thing. From time to time, and, and perhaps from day to day, our commitment to Jesus must be affirmed and restated. I don't know when you did that last. Back in the 1970s, John Stott's book, Basic Christianity, was reissued. And Stott got a letter from Wesley Weatherhead. Now, if you've been reading what I've been reading and traveling in those circles for a long time, you'll know the name Leslie Weatherhead. Leslie Weatherhead was a Methodist pastor, probably the most famous Methodist pastor in England at the time and maybe in the whole world. He had written books on the faith. He was widely sought after as a speaker and a counselor. He introduced a way to do counseling that was Christian. This is what he wrote to John Stott after he read Basic Christianity. Dear John, Thank you for writing Basic Christianity. It led me to make a new commitment of my life to Christ. I'm now old, nearly 78, but not too old to make a new beginning. I rejoice in all the grand work you're doing. You're sincerely Leslie Weatherhead. Here was a man who had been committed to Christ for many decades a man who led others to commit to Christ. But at 78 years old, he was ready to recommit himself, his hopes, his security, his life to the direction and safekeeping of Jesus. I'm ready to do the same. How about you? Even as we come to the table, Lord, we come knowing that there's more to us than we have yet realized. And some of us that we've committed to your hands, we've taken back. So, Lord, in this moment, help us. In true faith, commit ourselves to you. Our time, our reputations, our relationships, our future, our security, all that we are. Thank you for returning the favor.